Morning, brothers and sisters and friends. Uh, my name is Eddie. I've been here almost three years now, so I'll be privileged to serve. Today's second Bible readings from um, First Thessalonians um, chapter two, verse thirteen to chapter three, verse thirteen. If you have a Bible around, it's on page two, uh, one thousand two hundred and thirty-eight. New Testament, page one thousand two hundred and thirty-eight. First Thessalonians chapter two, verse thirteen. And we also thank God continuously. Because when you received the, the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, become imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffer from your own countrymen. The same things those churches suffer from the Jews who killed Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see certainly. I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped at us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of the in our Lord Jesus? Christ when he comes. Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it la- it's best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fo- um, fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way, the tempter might have tempted you, and our effort might have been useless. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told you that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, In all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now, we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our Lord because of you? Night and day, we pray most earnestly that we might see you again and the 
supply which is lacking in your faith. Now may our Lord and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make us make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as our dust for you. May he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our Lord of our God and Father, who uh, when our Lord Jesus come with all his holy ones. Thank you, Eddie, for reading so well. And thank you, Yuvi, for praying and leading us in prayer for really reflecting what's on our hearts and for us to be able to say amen to that. That is our prayer too. Uh, but we will be having a look at this passage now. Let's uh, uh, keep the Bibles open and, and let's turn to God in prayer once again. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we hear your word read and taught, that we will receive it not as the word of men, but as the word of God himself. And so we pray, Lord, that we would hear it, sit under it with great expectation that you will be changing our lives because of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I wonder whether you feel that life can become so, so, so distracting and so often it's so easy to really lose focus in life. What are we on about? Just this past week on one of my pastoral visits, having a chat with one of our members, we discussed it's so difficult today to keep our young ones in church. It's just so difficult. And talk to enough elderly people amongst us, and you'll hear that same thing. In so many churches, churches that were once thriving, you know, beaming at, at the doors, but now are not only shrinking but without any children or youth, no kids ministry, no youth ministry. And so you hear this often enough, and it's really quite heartbreaking. So many churches are just shrinking. And as, a, as we reflect on our own church, it is really by the grace of God, the kindness of God, that we do have children and young ones amongst us. But why is it that it is so hard to keep young ones in church? Well, on this pastoral visit, we discussed about this and, and we said perhaps it's because of all the distractions today. So many distractions, so many things pulling in and pressuring us from school, from achieving, from sports, from trying to succeed, and then, of course, to entertainment. And our world now is such a different world. I'm not that old, but it's such a different world to the one I grew up in. Now you've got social media, Facebook, Instagram. A few months ago, I was in fact quite shocked about how much our world has moved. Uh, my daughter Esther, she picked up our home phone and she described it as a strange phone, you know, the landline phone, the phone with buttons on it. And I'm thinking, of course phones have buttons. But you see, their world, they grew up with phones without buttons. It is a different world. And it's a world that is so distracting. But of course, it's not just our young ones who are distracted. It can be us all as well. Grown-up adults, distractions from work and ambition and career and travel and health. And then for many of us, it's worrying about the health of our parents. For many of us, it's worrying about teenage kids. We're not there, there yet, but I hear it's stressful and we're afraid of it. And distractions from finances and super and schooling and paying bills and mortgages. And it goes on and on and on. And it gets so busy and so intense and there's so much pressure that I forget what am I living for? And what's fascinating 
is that life today is far more efficient than life a few decades ago. I mean, just think about our normal chores. Today we don't have to wash our clothes with hands. A few decades ago, I don't know, you used these wooden things and you're rubbing clothes against this wooden thing, whatever that's called. Today we have washing machines. Years ago, or maybe still in some households, we have to wash our dishes by hand. I mean, hand and getting soap on our hands. Today we've got dishwashers. Today we, we don't have to mow our lawn anymore because we've, we get the neighbours to do it for us. Oh, that's not true. <laughs> no, I, I mow my neighbour's lawn. But though so much of life is far more efficient, we all feel that, where's the time going? We seem to have far less time. It seems like since the 80s, we've been losing an hour a week. But of course, the reality is that time has not changed. It's still 24 hours a day. It's still 168 hours a week. But perhaps what has changed amongst Christians, amongst churches, perhaps even amongst us, are our priorities. Are they the same? And so my question for us all this morning is, how do I keep focus in life? How do I stay on the straight and narrow? How do I make sure that my life is not only filled with meaning, but is headed to glory? How do I stay on the straight and narrow? And so that is what we see in our passage. We see Paul again, and we see his desire not only for himself, that he remains focused in life, but also for the Christians in Thessalonica. He wanted to make sure that they there, whom he loved so dearly, would end up in glory, would end up in heaven as well with him. And so in this passage, we see Paul's deep, genuine, heartfelt love towards them, like what we saw last week, like a father encouraging them, like a mother nurturing them. And here Paul begins expressing his thanks to God once again. But what is he thanking God for this time? Well, he's thanking God because as Paul taught them and proclaimed the gospel to them, those Christians there in Thessalonica, they received it not as the word of men, but as the word of God. And so Paul is thank you, thankful they got it right. They saw it that when the Bible is taught, it is not just men speaking, but it is God who speaks. And so what Paul proclaimed to them were the very words of God, the words of Scripture, the promises here, the promise we see in Scripture, sins are forgiven. Relationship with God can be reconciled. Eternal life is given. Adoption is granted. These are not the words of men. These are the promises of God. And the Thessalonians, they recognized that. They believed that. They knew as they heard Paul, this is the word of God. And it was effective in them. It changed them. Have a look at verse 13. And so we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. And that is why it is the word of God that is central to our weekly gathering as Christians, as we do fellowship together, as we share lives together, we do so around the Word of God, around the Bible being taught, being read, being explained, being expounded. 
And that is why in every church I attend or every church you attend, when the preacher is preaching, you need to do so with your Bibles open because you need to make sure, is that preacher preaching what's in the text? Is that preacher preaching what God is preaching, what God is teaching me? We need to do so with our Bibles open. And so it really baffles me as I've uh, been to different churches and visited um, some on leave, that there are churches that don't even open up the Bible. They don't read the Bible. They don't teach it. Or even at weddings and funerals, especially if you're Christian. Especially if you're Christian, you want the Bible opened and read. Because especially at those events, we want to hear what God has to say about life and death at funerals. We want to hear what God has to say about love and marriage at weddings. And so as we submit ourselves to the word of God each week, we are in fact to expect God is at work as well. These are not the words of mere men. We can't trust men or women. But if these are the words of God, we are to expect my life is going to be changed today by God. Our lives are nourished under the word of God, encouraged, corrected even, rebuked, but also spurred and motivated for the kingdom of God. And so do you see how it changed the lives of the Thessalonian Christians? It changed their life as well. It gave them such heartfelt conviction that they were willing to suffer for Christ. They were so convinced, this is true. This is God's word to us, and I'm willing to suffer for it. Have a look at verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffer from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffer from the Jews. You see, they suffer for it because this is, this is God speaking to them. And it really remains the true, to, the true today that Christians suffer for God and for his word. I mean, if we really believe that what is in Scripture are the words of God, that Jesus is the only way to salvation, that all other ways, all other worldviews, all other religions will only lead to condemnation, then I'd be willing to suffer for that. I'd be willing to stand up for that. If the world says to us Christians, stop proclaiming Christ, stop being a fundamentalist, well, we must never because it is the only way to salvation. If the world despises us because you're a Christian, you fundamentalist, you bigot, you ancient man, woman, you should just get on with the times. But we must never be ashamed of Christ because he is the only saviour there is. You see, in our world has changed so much even in my few decades of life. Our world now is sort of postmodern. There's such great pressure for Christians to compromise on what we hold dear, on the scriptures. In 2016, the University of Sydney, their student union, they threatened to deregister the Christian group on campus. It was quite ridiculous. The Evangelical Union is the largest student group on campus and perhaps one of the oldest at Sydney Uni. But what was their threat? And why the threat? Well, they threatened them because their leaders must declare faith in Jesus as the sole Saviour and Lord. And so the student union, they didn't like that. They said, well, you have to be more inclusive in your group. How dare you sort of restrict your Christian group to only Christian leaders? I mean, it's a bit absurd when you think about it. They try to deregister them. 
That was the pressure they were feeling, but should they have compromised? Well, of course not, and they did not, and so they continued today. And so here in this passage, the Thessalonian Christians, they received the word of God, they were changed by it, and they were willing to even suffer for it. And so Paul's word to them was nothing less than the word of God. That is what we are to expect each week, that God speaks to us and into our lives. But now once again, Paul expresses his, his love, his heart for them. Like a parent so concerned for, for your children, he longs for them and longs for them to persevere, to remain in the faith, to remain in the truth to remain focused in life. Don't, don't deviate. Don't get off track. Don't fall. Remain focused in life. And you can understand why he was so concerned for the church, why he was so concerned for Christians. I mean, if we think about just us, how many people do we know who once attended even this church, perhaps went to Sunday school here, perhaps went through a youth group here, perhaps even join one of our growth groups, but now no longer walk in the faith. I mean, there are so many distractions in life, so easy to lose focus. And that's why Paul here, he wanted to visit them. He longed for them. He wanted them to persevere. But here we see he was prevented by Satan himself. Now, whatever that means, what it at least means is that the life of a Christian is a spiritual battle. It's not just with blood and bones and flesh, but in the spirit as well. And so verse 17 and 18, that's what we see. We read, But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. But we see his heart, isn't it? His heart for the church, his longing, his love for them. And wouldn't it be great? Isn't it great if this is reflected in our own hearts for each other, that somehow Paul's heart is reproduced in us for each other, that there is such longing in all of us for each other. We want to be together that we might spur each other, encourage each other, motivate each other to remain focused in life to stay on the straight and narrow, to be headed to glory. It actually made me think this past week, reflecting on this passage, whether that's how I feel. The next time I go off on annual leave, which will be in July, or the next time you're away from church for a while, what's our attitude towards this family here? What's our feelings towards this family here when we're away? Are we thinking... Man, I couldn't wait to get away from church for a few weeks. I just couldn't stand all those people. I mean, and now I dread coming back. Is that our feeling? Or perhaps it might be a bit more like Paul. When I was away, I actually longed to be back to church. I prayed for you. I wanted to encourage you. I wanted to be back with you, that you might encourage me, that I might encourage you. I mean, we find this in our life, on our day off. Monday's my day off. And we're often thinking about church stuff. I mean, we should have a day off, but we're thinking about people, about you. What might our attitude be? Is it like Paul? In my growth group, which we run on Thursday nights at our place, I'm in fact very encouraged by 
many of the members in our group who feel this way, who I see pours heart in them. A few years ago, one young man who was part of our group, he moved to New Zealand for work, but to, because he longed to be with us, to be encouraged by us and to encourage us, he, he, he joined us on Skype that he might join us at our growth group so that Skype is video conferencing over the internet. Currently, we actually have a sister who's part of our group who attends our evening service. She's in Japan for exchange for quite a few months. But she also joins in on Skype because she longs to be with us and we long to encourage her. And most recently, the latest was another sister who went to Alaska and Canada. Get this, on a cruise in somewhere up there, nice, 3.30 a.m. in the morning, woke up to join us on Skype at, uh, in our growth group to encourage us that we might also encourage her. I mean, we, we see this longing amongst so many here and it's so good to see. But it's like the longing of poison it for fellow believers. You see, the reason why Paul was so deeply concerned for them is because he wants them to be on the straight and narrow, that he might see them in the end in glory and not be so distracted by this world and not be lost to this world. You see, Paul wants to see all of them there in heaven because they, the people, the Christians, are his crown and glory. That's how he describes it. They are his crown and glory. You see, in heaven, the glory, the joy we will experience, which is unimaginable and hard to describe, but the joy we will experience will be increased and intensified by those we see there because of our ministry, because of our efforts for the kingdom here on earth. I mean, just imagine this. We're in heaven and you're in heaven and someone rocks up to you. Some guy you can't work out who he is. And he says to you, thank you. You don't remember me, but you taught me Sunday school when I was five years old. And I gave my life to Christ because of you. And that's why I'm here. Imagine if that were to happen. Or another one rocks up to you and says, thank you for, for caring for me through those difficult years as a teenager. Or another one rocks up to you and says, thank you for your stern warning of falling away. Your rebuke kept me on the straight and narrow. Or another one comes up and says, well, thank you for ministering to me when my marriage was in a mess. Your prayers, your counsel kept our marriage together. Imagine that in heaven. You see how the joy can be intensified and increased by our ministry here on earth. You see, that is the crown, that is the glory, that is the joy of heaven that Paul was longing for. And Paul wants that. He wants to see all of those Thessalonian Christians there in glory. And that's what we see. Look at verse 19 and 20 now. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you, indeed, you are our glory and joy. You see, often Christians mistaken the crown or the glory in heaven to be the stuff I get in heaven. 
I get more stuff than other Christians. And so the great Christian thinkers and evangelists will get a bigger crown in heaven. And so, you know, Calvin and Luther and Billy Graham, they'll get a, get a bigger crown, which means they just need a bigger head in heaven. Well, that's not what he says, right? Or people might think I get a mansion in heaven because of my efforts on earth. And I might even get some angels who do my gardening. Well, some ordinary Christians, they're out in the suburbs of heaven, far from the throne of God, and they have to do their own gardening. But that's not what he says. You see, the crown, the glory is not the stuff of heaven. The crown, the glory, the reward is intrinsic, not extrinsic, not stuff, but internal stuff. And so instead, my joy comes from seeing those people that God has used me to influence, to bring to faith, to build up in faith, to nurture in faith, to mend their relation, to help them along and help them to stay on the straight and narrow. To see them in heaven, that is my crown and glory. It is people. And that's the joy that Paul longs for. It's really the joy we should long for for each other here, that no one, none of us here be lost to this world. How sad that would be when we're in heaven, in that great reunion, that great banquet, in the glory of God, and we're reflecting on life at Surrey Hills. What, what happened to that person? Didn't that person come to our Sunday school, our youth group? Our, wasn't that person so regular at church? Where are they now? We do not want that. We want everyone to be in glory. And so to make sure that they do persevere and stay on the straight and narrow, what did Paul do? Well, here we read, he sends his trusted lieutenant, Timothy, to get a report. Verse 1 to 3, have a look. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker, in spreading the gospel of Christ, to be strengthened and encourage you in your faith, so that no one will be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. You see, what this shows is that Christians are never meant to be lone rangers. We're not meant to live as Christians alone. We, in fact, need each other. That's why Paul sent Timothy. They need each other. And we also need those entrusted with teaching God's word to be above us and over us to shepherd us. And that's why Timothy was sent. And what was the report? Well, verse 6. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. In verse 8, For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. Now do you notice how interesting that verse was? Paul says we really live. We're alive now because they're standing firm. He's living because those Christians miles away are standing firm in the faith. It shows how much his life is bound up with theirs. And so he thanks God for them. Verse 9. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? I mean, this is the shape of Christian fellowship, what the church family is meant to experience, what we are to expect to experience here. In fact, what we do experience so many times. And so here we see Paul's loving heart for the church, a heart that we pray and hope will be reproduced in us 
for each other. And now finally, Paul ends with his prayer for the church. He acknowledges that this is all God's work in them. No one can take the credit for it. It is all God's work, and so he prays to God for them. Verses 12 and 13. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you'll be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. What a wonderful prayer that is. It's to pray for them that their love might increase, but that they would stay on the straight and narrow when they meet the Lord Jesus. And so how do you think this passage speaks to us today here at Surrey Hills? How does this help us remain focused in life in light of all the distractions and all the pressures? How do we stay focused in life? You see, the, the things that concerned the Apostle Paul back then are still the same concerns for us today, where Christians are like. And you see, though much of the world has changed over the years, Christian living still looks the same. Christian perseverance still looks the same. And remaining focused in life still looks the same. It has not changed in 2,000 years. And so what we need is to be reminded by what we're taught in this passage. And that is all Christians, all of us, firstly, we are to remain in God's truth. Secondly, we are to grow in God's love. And thirdly, just like the Apostle Paul, to long for God's future. That's what Paul wanted them and what Paul would want of us. And so you see, this is for all of us to remain in God's truth. And to see, just like the Thessalonians, each week when we read the Bible, in your daily devotions, when you open up the Word of God, it is in fact the Word of God. And we are to expect to be changed by it and nothing less. And it's perhaps why in, in, in churches today, many churches, and it is a sad fact, that there are many missing generations. Not sure if you've noticed this. You speak to enough churchgoers, elderly churchgoers who have been to other churches, or you speak to enough of them, so many churches are missing generations in their church. Some churches are just filled with older folks. Some churches, very young and very old and missing decades in between. Some churches, they might be missing the 20s or the 30s or the 40s or the 50s or the 60s made me reflect on our church. Well, in the kindness of God, and really is only the kindness and the grace of God, in our church we actually have every generation, from little ones to the 90s, every generation covered. But you may have heard of that phrase, first generation believes the gospel, second generation assumes the gospel, they're churchgoers, but they only assume it now, the third generation, what will happen? They doubt the gospel. They doubt that even God exists and start siding with the atheists. The fourth generation, what will happen? Well, they'll deny the gospel altogether and start waving you know, rainbow flags. It takes four generations for the gospel to be lost entirely. And I suspect that's why some churches are missing generations, because they have not remained in the truth. But in fact, I think it actually takes far less time 
for the gospel to be lost. If the second generation only assumes the gospel, it is lost already. And that's why we shape our ministry here around the word of God. I mean, the kids are learning from the book of Isaiah. I'm afraid to preach from Isaiah. It's a big book, but they're learning it in our kids' church. How wonderful is that? In our youth ministry, we don't assume that just because their parents are Christians, that they are Christians too. We, we don't assume that. We never assume that. And that's why we organize our ministry around the word of God. We keep them in our prayers so that they might remain in the truth. We don't want any missing generation. But having said all that, whose job is it primarily to disciple our little ones? Who do you think? Is it the job of our Sunday school teachers? Or the job of our youth leaders or even the pastor? Now I'm sure they'll all do a good job. But the reality is that they'll only have one to two hours each week with our little ones. And so whose job is it primarily to disciple our little ones that they might remain in the truth, that they might stay on the straight and narrow, that they might end up in glory? Of course, it's the parents. We are disciple makers ourselves. Though we do have great teachers, great leaders in youth group, it is primarily those of us who are parents and even grandparents can have their influence to have their influence to disciple our own children and our own grandchildren that they might remain in the truth and that's why spending time if this is not a a habit that you might do in your household it's perhaps worth starting and it's not too complicated the habit of doing family devotions if you don't do it perhaps just try once a week and go from there Read the Bible together, pray for each other, pray for the church, pray for the world. Remain in the truth together. It is the primary job of parents to disciple their own kids. But to remain in the truth is true for all of us, and it is important for the rest of us adults. If this is the word of God, what we hear each week, what we read each week, then I'll believe this instead of what the world tells me. If the world says you will find ultimate fulfillment in your job, your career, your financial security, and so live for that, give yourself to that, but then God, on the other hand, he says, you cannot serve two masters. You can't at the same time serve both God and money. Who will you believe? I will go with God. If the world says your worth as a person is bound up with your prestige, your success, your body image, your relationships. But then God, on the other hand, he says, if you believe in Christ, your identity is found in him. You have become a child of God. That is what you are worth. Who will you believe? I'll go with God. If the world says, no one cares for you, no one's going to look out for you, and so you have to care for yourself. You have to live for yourself. You have to love yourself first. But then God, on the other hand, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Who will you believe? I'll go with God. And so it is for all of us, not just our young ones, but for all of us to remain in God's truth. But here we also see from Paul, remember, his heart. He wants Christians to grow in God's love. That was what he prayed, verse 12, that the Lord 
may make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. Overflow with love. Not be stingy and just love minimally. Overflow with love for each other. That is meant to be the, the fellowship amongst us, where there is an overflowing of love for each other. The shape of our Christian fellowship must be shaped by this. A love that would keep us all on the straight and narrow. A love that always seeks to build each other and to encourage each other. Let's, let's keep our eyes on Jesus. I know that is difficult, but let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's think about eternity. A love that would even correct and rebuke each other when needed. I mean, if a brother or sister is living in sin, or is sliding away, and we can see that quite obviously, or is prioritizing anything else other than God, then what's the loving thing to do? Seems easy just to either ignore it or just be kind and nice, but that's not loving. To love is to rebuke, to correct, to bring back to the word of God that they might remain in the truth on the straight and narrow. This past week, we, at our growth group, we had the Campbells, you know, Ian and Rachel Campbell. At our growth group, they got, uh, shared about their work and mission work in the, in the Middle East, and it was extremely encouraging. But they expressed to us how grateful they are to God for how they feel loved and cared for. They need that. They need an overflowing of love from the church, from us. And so when there were terrorist attacks where they were, when there was the coup where they were, it was so unsettling and frightening for them. But they expressed when they received letters and phone calls how they felt loved and overflowing of love from the church and, of course, also from the church they belong to. That is the shape of our church, to grow in God's love. And finally... To remain focused in life, we are to long for God's future. Not live for the now, but to know that there is eternity ahead of us. Eternity goes on forever and ever. Not just for the now, but eternity. And that is what is important for us to remember, that what Paul was hoping for the Thessalonians. And what was that? He was hoping that they would all make it there in the end that they will all be in glory, that they will be his crown and glory. And so also, that should keep us focused in our life. Not just the now, not just the next 10 years, not just the next 20 years, but eternity. That is forever. That is to keep our eyes and hearts in focus. Because in the end, we don't want anyone missing in glory where we can have that great reunion in heaven and everyone is there. We know each other. We, we shared our lives together down at Surrey Hills. And so we live now building that, investing in that. And we'll face God one day, hopefully with great joy, this wonderful crown that Paul speaks of. But it is sad, isn't it, that there are Christians, believers, who will one day face God and unfortunately will in fact have nothing to show for. Because they live their life not for the kingdom of, the, of God, but for their own kingdom. Not building the kingdom of God, but building their own kingdom. And so they come to Christ one day with empty hands. No eternal fruit at all. Now I'm sure none of us want to rock up to Christ empty-handed. 
And so I'd like to end with this old hymn, a powerful hymn written by Charles Luther, which reminds us of, of the fact, let's, let's not waste our life. Long for God's future. Now, I've shared this hymn before, a few times, in fact, at camp. Some of you might remember this. But this was a hymn written by Charles Luther after hearing the story of a young man who was about to die. Now, this young man only became a Christian a month before he died. And this, this, uh, this hymn writer, he, he was just a bit sad because he saw the sadness in this young man that though his time is short, he's sad because he has so little time to serve the Lord. And so this young man said, I'm not afraid to die. Jesus saves me now. But must I go empty-handed? So he, he's become a Christian. Death is near. He wants to serve the Lord. He wants to invest the kingdom. But he feels saddened because he's only got a month to do it. And so Charles Luther, hearing this story, he wrote this hymn. He goes like this. Must I go and empty-handed? Thus, my dear Redeemer, meet. Not one day of service give him. Lay no trophy at his feet. Must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet my Saviour so? Not one soul with which to greet him. Must I empty-handed go? Oh, the years in sinning wasted. Could I but recall them now? I would give them to my Saviour. To him will I gladly bow. O ye saints, arouse, be earnest. Up and work while yet this day, or the night of death overtake thee. Strive for souls while still you may. And so as a church, let's keep this in mind. We are to remain in God's truth, grow in God's love, and long for God's future, that we might all one day stand before our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, not with empty hands, but instead, like the Apostle Paul, find our glory and joy. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for the good work you have been doing in this church for over 100 years. And we pray that you will continue to do your good work in keeping your people here in your truth, growing us in your love and helping us to long for your future. And we pray now, Paul's prayer as our own prayer, that you, our Lord, might cause us to increase and overflow with love for one another, that you might strengthen our hearts so that we'll be blameless and holy in the presence of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his holy ones. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.